welcome to Man Up, the podcast by men, about men, and for men who want to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Today's topic, the Christian in crisis. Are you ready? Man up. Yes, sir! Welcome, welcome, my friends. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and this is your podcast, Man Up. With all of the information and encouragement that you need to be a better father, husband, leader, and follower of Jesus. We are a band of brothers. We are soldiers in arms. We fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, hand over hand, and mile after mile until each of us helps the other obtain the high calling of Jesus. And today on our program, we are joined by fellow evangelist Edwin Crozier. Edwin's also a podcaster, and how you doing today? I'm fantastic, Jared. Thank you so much for letting me be here with you. It's great to put a face with the uh, with the Facebook post now. <laughs> Although I know nobody listening to us is seeing your face, but They're I'm very grateful it. for that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a gospel preacher. I have been such for about 26, 27 years. I have one wife and four children. And my kids are aged 14 to 24. One is married. One is about to be married. Two are still waiting on that for some time and and years to go on that, I hope. And let's see here. I work with the uh, Christians who meet on Livingston Avenue in Lutz, Florida. I've been here for about seven years. You mentioned the podcast a few moments ago. I am a co-host on the podcast Text Talk with my good brother and fellow worker, Andrew Roberts. I am... Excited to be here with you today to talk about manhood, talk about the gospel and how it fits in with that, take a look at our culture, what it's doing to us, how it's impacting us. I'm excited about all these topics. Thank you for being here. Now, you mentioned Text Talk that you co-host, and that sort of reminds me a little bit of of the other thing that I do, biblically speaking, which is, uh, right now it's sort of evidence-based, but what we try to do is take hard passages and make them a little simpler to understand. And one of the things that I've... Well, that's that's the exact opposite of what I do. What what I try to do is take easy passages and make them hard to understand. No, I've heard I your five-point analysis before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. So, well, so Text Talk is, it, it's, it's at heart, it is something for our congregation and for our evangelistic effort here, yet... Because of the magic of the internet and of podcasting, it's something that gets to go out for lots and lots of people. So while our goal is not to be the highest subscribed podcast out there, we'd love for other folks to chime in, to subscribe, and, and be involved in that conversation. We have a Bible reading program, uh, or plan I should say, among the Livingston Christians here. And what it's been for the past couple of years is we take a section of scripture and we read one chapter every week, but we ask our brothers and sisters here to read it every day, to read that same chapter every day. So we try to have a little bit more immersive. And then I write, and and I've done this ever since I've been here for every Bible uh, reading plan that we've had every year, I write a little devotional blog post that, that goes along with it, that goes out to our members who subscribe, really to anybody who subscribes. And then a couple years ago, we decided to step that up a notch or two and add in the podcast element. And so we we begin where that little daily devotional was on the written one. And then Andrew and I just talk about the text for about 13 and a half minutes. And when you add in the, the bumpers at the beginning and the end, it gets to be about 15, sometimes 16 minutes. <laughs> the only podcast I've ever done that's that short is one that I did on my own. <laughs> <laughs> Mine typically go... It takes work to keep it that short. Well, and, and I think when you're doing something where you're trying to keep the text simple, you really do need to keep it that short. You know, If it's discussion format, then you can wind 45 minutes to an hour and split it. But if you're trying to get people to understand a passage, if you've spent an hour talking about a passage, you've probably given them more than they can digest in that amount of time. No. But I didn't know the backstory. That's what they keep telling me every time I preach. <laughs> Our goal with the text talk is... It is, it is really a daily devotion type right. format, and so we, we picked the 15 minutes because we didn't want it to, to, to overwhelm someone's morning or day, but something that uh, folks could say, you know what, I can listen to that in the yeah. morning and then get going with my day. Yeah. Either be- right before or right after I do the daily Bible reading. So we've got a big topic today. We're talking about crisis, and, and I was probably 
was probably a little bit excited when I saw you post something on Facebook the other day because I, I, I hadn't told you this, but I have seen your sense of humor and I've heard it in your podcast and I knew that you and I were going to have a great conversation because we have a very similar sense of humor. I, I think we both like dad jokes. Oh boy. And uh, maybe, oh, maybe a little too Love much. It. We're both kind of geeks. And, and so, <laughs> and apparently we are both huge coffee drinkers. So you can see how big my cup is, right? So. <laughs> I don't know. That looks backwards on my screen. This was a Christmas gift. Can you tell what that uh, says? Is it- Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You drank my coffee. Prepare to die. That's nice. Mine says, Indiana Jones, trusted since 1935. And the other side is the shipping logo for the Indiana Jones export company. So there you go. So... Uh, <laughs> That, uh, but I could tell we were going to have a good conversation. So I got really excited when I saw this Facebook post because I thought, this is a great question for Man Up. And bonus, I get to finally ask Edwin to be on the program. So I've been looking for an angle for this. So full confession that I had been looking for an angle to have you on the program. But you posted this thing the other day. It was based on a book you were reading that asked the question, are you a crisis-centered Christian or a Christ-centered Christian? And I thought, that is a wonderful discussion. Could you tell us a little bit about that Facebook post before we jump into the first question? I was, I was reading a book that I just finished, actually, um, the other day, and it's called Competent to Minister. I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure that I accept the thesis of the book, so I, I'm, I'm not recommending it necessarily, but... A lot of challenging things throughout that book for us to look at in our culture as we accept the psychologizing and that that we're in in our culture. I I think there's a lot of good to be had. I'm just not sure I buy their their full thesis. So I just I just want to say I'm 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 leery of recommending it fully. But the one thing I did like about it is that they're very much hey let's we got to follow the bible we got to figure out what the bible says about how to deal with these issues anyway within that as they were talking about counseling and ministering and psychology and all of those things there was just a statement where they talked about people who were focused on their problems and it's like they bounced from one problem to another and the way they dealt with it was i've got to fix this problem i've got to fix this problem and their their mind and their their outlook and their perspective was consumed and overwhelmed by an examination of the problems. What's the root of the problem? What's the cause of the problem? How can I fix the problem? And their suggestion was, we don't grow by focusing on our problems. We grow by focusing on Christ. Now that I agree with. And they just said, it was just kind of a a statement that that, that they quoted, I looked it back up a minute ago because I knew that's what prompted this, where they just said, yeah, a friend of ours calls this being crisis-centered instead of Christ-centered. And so that's what prompted the question that I posted on Facebook. It just caused me to say, oh, wow. And and what I posted on Facebook was, am I crisis-centered or am I Christ-centered? What am I focusing on? Is my perspective, my outlook, my day overwhelmed, consumed with the crisis du jour, or is my view and my perspective overwhelmed and consumed with Christ and looking to Jesus. And that's that's what I was thinking of when I put that Facebook post. And I think that that's an important topic, particularly when we, we think about being men, that I'm writing a book right now for those that are going to want to join the Man Up mailing list. It'll be free, and other, otherwise I'm going to sell it on Amazon for the ridiculously high price of probably $8. But it's called Man Up. Yeah. Catchy title, right? <laughs> no yeah, way. I'd be mind blown. Where'd you come up with that one? But one of the chapters is on crisis and in the decision points that we come to in crisis. And and one of the things that I think about, you know, looking at people that that had that made decisions in crisis. Well, you've got you've got really two extremes that I can be I think can be exemplified in two different uh, Bible characters. One is Abraham. And really, you could look at Abraham for both. But Abraham, when he was told to go and offer Isaac, yeah, th- th- that's a crisis there. That, I mean, that's a big decision where whether or not you trust God is going to come into play. And the other is David when he's dealing with the discovery of his infidelity with Bathsheba. And you have two examples there of, of godly men who at that moment dealt very differently with, 
with a crisis. And we'll get more into what makes us make good decisions and bad decisions during crisis, but let me ask probably the easiest question we're going to face today. What in your mind constitutes a crisis? You say that may be the easiest question, but uh, that's the question where I, when, when you'd let me know you were going to ask that before we got on here, that I, I, oh yeah, I know what a crisis is. And I, I remember what this book and their kind of idea of a crisis, but then I decided, well, let me look up the definition of a crisis before I just jump in here. And I realized that uh, my perspective of crisis has not been a full perspective. So even in this book that I referenced earlier, they essentially equated crisis with problem, crisis with struggle. If I'm facing a problem, that's a crisis. If, if it's a big problem, that's an even bigger crisis. But here's, here's Merriam-Webster, uh, a couple of their definitions. I picked out some that I think that go along with, with kind of how we're conversing about this. And I did get this from MiriamWebster.com. Anybody can check it. One of them was an emotionally significant event or radical change of status in a person's life. And then another definition that they had, an unstable or crucial time or state of affairs in which a decisive change is impending, especially one with the distinct possibility of a highly undesirable outcome. So that's two of the six or seven definitions they had. The thing that I noticed, though, that was pretty consistent in all of the definitions and uses of the word was that concept of impending change. Something has, has pushed to a breaking point. Something has, it's not just a problem, but it's a problem that I have become so aware of and maybe even so pained by that I know some change has to be made. And it's that moment of change that's going to determine the outcome. It's a crisis because it's very possible that I might make a choice and whatever I change actually leads me to destruction and death, mm -hmm. to collapse. I also looked this up on Edom Online. That's an etymology website that gives us the history of words and where our words came Nerd. from. I thought this was pretty fascinating. The, it, it probably wouldn't surprise anyone to know that our English word crisis comes from the Greek word krisis, which basically means judgment or decision. I mean, they're, they're almost spelled exactly the same, except we have a C and they have a kappa. The, the, the word itself just means judgment or decision or evaluation or distinguishing. But what Edom Online highlighted is that our use of crisis kind of comes from a, 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 a special use that they, they referred back to Hippocrates and Galen. These are two doctors in the ancient world. The Hippocratic Oath comes from Hippocrates. Mm -hmm. They use the term that, that would normally just mean judgment. That's how the Bible uses this Greek term, judgment or evaluation. They used it as the turning point in a disease. It's that change which indicates recovery or death. So a crisis, you know, when we're smack in the middle of the crisis, it feels like this world-ending, terrible, awful thing that's happening. But really what makes it a crisis is we're at the turning point. We're at a unique point that says, I can either go in one way that's going to lead to death, or I can go in the other way that's going to lead to life. So I was, I was pretty fascinated to discover that background to the word crisis. So the other day when you actually sent me that you were going to ask that question, I thought, well, what constitutes a crisis? It's a problem. But I've learned, and I, I feel like my understanding has become fuller on this. I'm very thankful to have looked this up. It's, it's not just a problem, but it's a problem that, that presents a turning point. Just the kind of value you get here on Man Up. <laughs> but, you know, what's interesting about that is it, it parallels what Jesus said in Matthew 7 about the, the narrow and the broad way. And it really parallels something that B.J. Sipe and I were talking about just a few minutes ago when we were recording, which he says hello, by the way, that, but when we, uh, when we think about repentance and how it's not a one-time decision, it becomes a walk it becomes a path of progression, then, and you think about crisis being the point that we turn from one way that we know leads to destruction and and to another way that leads to eternal life, very often it's, you know, like the prodigal son, the crisis is what brings us to the opportunity to really see God in the way that we should. And that is, and it starts with seeing our deep and abundant need for him. Right. Crises are not bad. Crises 
like so many things, it's about how we use them, how we respond to them, not just whether or not we have them. Right. So there's a lot of talk today about a crisis when it comes to men. In fact, hearing about men in crisis is very common in religious writing. And it really has to do with the way that society has devalued men. That, you know, that men are, and this is something that Mark Royals and I were talking about a couple of days ago when we were recording, that the idea of men needing to become more like women so that society can be, can heal from the idea of toxic masculinity is really, it really comes from two different positions. Number one, it comes from misunderstanding of what masculinity really is. And second of all, it comes from men who have bought into this. And But you hear things like men aren't leading. Men are delaying important milestones like fatherhood and marriage. Men are leaving spiritual decisions of their families to their wives. Much of this is the result of the culture wars of the last 50 years. Are we at a crisis point when it comes to men and masculinity? Are we having a struggle and a problem with men and masculinity? We certainly are. Are we at the crisis point? Well, I think culturally, our culture is fine with where things are, so they probably don't see us at a turning point. But when we look at Christians, it might be good to say, yeah, we are at a crisis point. We are at a turning point. And then just be honest. Okay, what if, if we're at a turning point, if we're at a point where we're going to make a choice and the choice is either going to lead us to destruction and death or we're going to make a choice that will lead us to recovery and life, we just need to be really honest about what the choices are and which which way our actions will lead us. And I hate to say it, but we've got to remember the, that old preacher illustration where they draw the the angle on the chalkboard and they point out that that you know you've got the straight line going across the bottom and then you've got the angle going up. And initially, that choice doesn't seem like it's making that big of a difference. But when you follow it out further and further away, the angled line gets further away from the line we're on. Even small choices have big consequences down the road. I think probably we've been at a number of crisis points over the past several hundred years Unfortunately, our culture keeps making the choices at those times of crises to keep pursuing destruction and death. I, I think, I'm, I've been trying to think about how I wanted to, to talk about this, because I do think that maybe what we see as the choices are not, a, are not the foundation of the choice. Mm -hmm. I think for me as a Christian, historically, when it's come to these issues of manhood, I have thought, well, the, the, the choice, the turning point is, are, am I going to obey this particular verse or not? And, and not recognizing that there's actually a background behind those verses. God hasn't given us verses because he's just arbitrarily trying to, to force something on us we don't like. He doesn't give us verses because he's just got some arbitrary rules to make things hard on us. There's a worldview. There's a perspective. And what's happened, and this... I mean, just America in its own existence has been part of this, but the democratizing of religion, the individualization of culture is is at heart where the problem has been. A lot of times, folks go back and read the Bible and they see what it says about the roles of men in the family and the roles of women in the family, the roles of men in the church and the roles of women in the church. And they read it from a modern, democratized, individualistic approach. But when you go back to the Bible, what we have to understand is that the Bible was written in a day of communities and families. Mm -hmm. And that's because, in God's view, the basic unit for society is not the individual. The basic unit for society is the family. Now, that's not to say that there aren't individuals. Right. Single, that's, you know, there, there is a single person who is, that's, I guess we could say, a, a kind of family. But even in the scripture, the single person was usually still a part of their family of origin, is the word we use right. these days, or the phrase. 
when I understand that God views the basic unit of society as the family, suddenly what the Bible says about the roles of men and women does not say anything about the value of men and women. It does not say anything about the equality of men and women. It simply says, here is a group, and there are roles that are in that group. But what we've done is we have bought the lies of individualism, the the lies that the basic unit for society and culture is the individual. And here's why that's a problem. Individualism is by definition anti-cultural. I know that's a strong statement, but individualism is by definition anti-cultural. Because what scripture is trying to teach us is that I need to take my impulses, I need to take my goals, I need to take my wants and desires and submit them to something greater and larger than myself. Mm -hmm. Family, community, culture is a way that that happens. But the more I pursue individualism, I am telling the family and the community and the culture that they can all go jump in a lake. I don't have to submit my impulses to anyone. I don't have to submit my life to anything greater. I am the greatest thing I know. And therefore, everybody else just has to deal with me. Now, I want them to be able to do that as well, supposedly. And we somehow have the idea that we're going to live as these individuals that are pursuing all our own desires and wants. And somehow it's going to be a happy, wondrous, joyous thing in the culture and the community. And it will not. Right. But once I buy that lie of individualism, that the individual is the basic unit of society, then all of a sudden I do have those questions. Oh, man. Well, if I say a man leads a woman, that makes it sound like I'm saying the man is more important than the woman or that the man is smarter than the woman. Because the role in that point communicates value as opposed to function. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so this is the thing. I think the crisis really comes back to it's not just about... How are men going to behave? How are women going to behave? The, the turning point here is, are we going to continue down a path of individualism? And Jared, I see Christians going down that path. I, I mean, even among Christians, the idea is you just be who you are. You just be who you are. And I, I get that God has created us differently. And so you might be an eye and I might be an ear and we, and we need to fit that in there. But we are we are buying into this individualized idea that, that everybody else just needs to deal with who I am and I just get to do what I want. You know, typically Christians will say, I mean, yeah, but obey the Bible. Right. But, but we're undergirding it with this individualistic idea that, look, is just, it's anti-cultural. And therefore, because the church is a culture, it is a community, individualism is anti-church. And it just will be. You know, and that frames the discussion in a little bit of a different light, because, and it should come as no surprise that that society wants to distract us, you know, with something going on over here from the real issue that they want to tell you it's men versus women, or, or race one race versus another, or you know, some kind of breakdown that they can that they can differentiate between people to get you to align yourself in this struggle with one side and the other. But what it really is is individualism against masculinity and femininity because it, when it gets right down to it, it is. femininity it's individualism. is just as much under attack as masculinity is. It absolutely is. Let's make, let's make the connection on why it is because individualism run rampant says the only thing that matters is how I feel in this moment. And so if I feel like a woman, what am I? I'm a woman. That is, we, it's, it's shocking. I, I, that's, why, that's why that angle picture is so important. Who would have thought that the decision to be individualistic would have gotten us to a place where people who are genetically male can say to the world, but inside I'm a woman, and the mass of people in the world say, oh, that makes sense. 
it's it's that individualism gone rampant that 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 I get to say and you don't get to say anything no even the body I have doesn't get to say anything about me. I, I, I don't even look at my body and say, oh, well, this body tells me who and what I am. No, no, I get to be whatever I want. That actually started with this democratization and individualism. Now, look, don't get me wrong. As far as a country's concerned, I'm super glad we live in a democracy as opposed to those monarchies. But at the same time, I don't know that democracy, what's the old saying, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others? <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, and, so. and that goes back to what you were saying earlier, that democratic principles don't apply to scripture because the individual is not the basic unit. I mean, the very first lesson that God teaches us in the Bible is that it's not good for man to be alone. And he showed him that in a very in a very detailed way and and what we learn from the creation of Eve is that God was showing man that the this relationship that replaces the relationship of a man to his mother and his father is all of the nurturing that you found in your home growing up plus the aspect of becoming one with another is what you're supposed to find in your marriage and you're supposed to give in your marriage at the same time. And that notion of being an individual is so far from the prescription that we see in Scripture that it ought to be eye-opening to us. And where this really started was as we moved sort of into the postmodern way of thinking, that we have come to this place where, where we are governed by impulse rather than ideal. And much of that comes down to having no direction, no outcome in mind for the decision that I'm making. It just feels good in that moment. And where you really see that is in that struggle for individuality as opposed to uh, trying to find, uh, form that, that covenant kind of bond is in the changing attitudes about sex. It's become all about the individual. Two people, rather than being in a covenant relationship, either have a relationship of convenience, and that's good enough, or no relationship at all in this hookup culture that we live in. And it's all about how it feels to be in the individual, as an individual. And one person gets what they want out of it, and one person gets what they want out of it, the other person gets what they want out of it, And but really, are they? Because one of the things that you see increasingly so, is the more that we try to turn to our own individual pleasure as opposed to forming a deep covenant, you know, even a sanctifying bond with our spouse, is there is an increasing amount of dissatisfaction. And so we go looking for things that are going to satisfy us because we can't be satisfied in something that is so vain when it is supposed to be an experience of bonding and unification. I would like to share something about that that issue in Genesis that I think helps us, but it's not it's not the common way we look at it, or it's not the common way that I've heard it. We, I sometimes fear, Jared, that our view of when God tells Adam it's not good for man to be alone, that I have spent too much of my time in my life reading that from the context of Shelley and Tennyson and the Romantics, right rather than just from the context of Scripture. Because what what I see there is God does not tell Adam it is not good for man to be lonely. He says it's not good for man to be alone. Right. And and we've we tend to view that as a romantic thing, rather than in the context it appears to me, that what God is pointing out is he's got a job for mankind that Adam, as male by himself, cannot accomplish. And so it is not good for male to be alone. And then he runs all the animals by him, and he points out that the animals, none of the animals are suitable to help man accomplish his mission that God has for him. And so then God creates Eve as the helper. That, that word for it's not good for man to be alone is the same one that's used when talked about Moses 
that it wasn't good for him to sit in judgment alone. He's got a job that's too big right. for him. So when I grasp that, one of the things that does is it points out that for a single Christian, it doesn't mean they're bad. Right. And so, it, but it, what it points out is that for, for this mission that God has given us, it takes men and women. And often men and women who are married to one another, and that's fine, but it doesn't take just male, it takes male and female. And so God created the world in that way, created mankind in that way, ultimately, in order to accomplish the job of spreading his sanctuary, of, of spreading his image bearers all over the mm-hmm. world. And I, I think it's, I, I really do think that's important because when I make the, if I make the issue of it's not good for man to be alone, strictly a romantic thing, even that ends up becoming feeding my own individual right. nature. I get into marriage because it will make me happy and it'll provide all my needs. Now, it doesn't say it's not good for man to be lonely. It, the word there would mean on his own or separate. And the ideal that he shows to combat or, or to combat this idea of I can be on my own is here's this sanctifying relationship. It, it's, it's a man with his wife. But you look at even the relationship we have to our brethren in the church, and you go to passages like Hebrews chapter 10, and it says, you know, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, and that's become the habit of some. And he tells them, it comes out of this let us statement of let us stir up each other to love and good works. What you see is that, again, community is the basis, uh, the basic bond of this life. And God formed us not to be individuals, but to create community. And when it comes to marriage, you're not just creating a community with your spouse, but you're also, as you were alluding to there, fulfilling this this role of, of bringing forth a greater community. But he's also helping you understand the, the connection that he is, he's striving for you to have with him. So much of the, of the discussion today about toxic masculinity is about how men are trampling on individuality. Well, individuality is trampling on the ideal of a unified, bonded society. I don't know very many people that look at the state of society today with the anger and the division and, and sometimes the outright hatred that people have for one another. I don't know anybody that looks at society today and says, oh yeah, we're, we're way better off than we were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And that's not to say that things were even good then. All of that comes from trying to individualize ourselves from the whole of what God created as opposed to trying to bring others to him. Again, individuality is anti-culture. Individualism, I should say. Individualism becomes anti-culture. And so when you look at this, and that doesn't mean that you... you I, I sometimes hear individuality is anti-Christian, and, and you know people are being telling their young kids, "Don't dye your hair some weird color because that makes you an individual." That's not what we're talking about. Yeah, that's why I wanted to. I, I accidentally said that. I don't mean that individualism. Right. And so, but this emphasizes, just to drive home what, what Edwin just said, we are part of each other as the body of Christ. That means that we bear one another's burdens, we share each other's struggles, we help that we want to see each other succeed. That's what we say at the beginning of this of this podcast, every episode. We're a band of brothers. We're comrades in arms. We are soldiers that we're fighting side by side and helping each other obtain the calling of Jesus. That thought is foreign to the way that we think today where individualism is about what I feel. We can talk about forming community and we can talk about this community or that community, but what we really see when we look at people is that community is convenient. I can define myself as this community until I don't like it anymore. But I don't give up my individualism, even as I maintain my own individuality, that I'm not, I'm not going to be in lockstep with everything that every brother in Christ says I need to be in lockstep with, because there's a lot of issues that come from that. But I don't seek to be an individual. I seek to be part of a body. And when community is about convenience and proximity and 
I, I will be part of it as long as it's convenient for me to be part of it, then I lose all perspective on what community actually is. Yeah, it, it may be that as we've pursued what the crisis really is and what the choices really are, we're, we're getting a field of where the question began. But if I can just show one more passage that I think gives a great balance on this, uh, and, and I'm really thinking about it because of what you just said. Recently, I, I've just noticed, you know, some, too often I preach sermons on one paragraph and I miss how they connect to the next paragraph or the previous paragraph. I do that too much. I've been saying that for years and for some reason I keep doing it. But always read a little Romans further, 12, right? I appeal. <laughs> yeah. Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so I preach my sermon on that passage, and I talk about worshiping God and obeying God and how I, as an individual, need to sacrifice my, my sinful pleasures and all of that kind of stuff. But what I recently noticed is if I just kept reading, I go from this paragraph that says, make my body a living sacrifice, and then here's what's next. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Here is that balance. Because what he says is, you sacrifice, you make your body a living sacrifice. Why? Not just, hey, you know, sacrifice your pleasures. That's, I mean, I know that's in there, but that's not all. It's in the context, it's because you're a part of a bigger body. You're a part of, and so you sacrifice your body because you're a part of this big. Now you are individually a member of it. You're not going to be exactly the same as everybody else. You're going to have strengths that they don't have. You're going to have function and role that they don't have. Or so, so individually, I may have a different function in the body and a different role in the body, but I tell you what I need to do is I need to learn how to sacrifice my body because I'm a part of a bigger body. And notice the hinge verse between those two concepts. Don't think too much of yourself. The hinge concept between there is quit being arrogant about your own individualism and your own strength and your own spirituality. You sacrifice your body... Because you're a part of a bigger body. That is a really, that may be the best exegesis I've seen on that off the cuff in my entire life, that this living sacrifice is you're being brought into something else in that transition verse of don't think too much of yourself. You don't stand apart from the body. So let me ask you one more question when it comes to masculinity before we take this topic in a whole different direction. But when you think about masculinity okay. and culture, what just off the top of your head, what things concern you, and is there anything that gives you hope? Okay, so you've talked about this as culture. Right. So the thing that concerns me about the culture, and when you ask that, I, I'm thinking in terms of our Western culture, our American right. culture. Was that is that the basis that you're asking this yeah, question that, from? That's the the gist of okay. it. Okay. Yeah, the culture that surrounds us. So. To be truthful, my biggest concern is this notion that individualism has gotten to that place of nobody and nothing is allowed to correct the way I feel. And that that the feeling that I have in my head and my heart is what, what governs all of this to the point that I'm completely incapable in our culture of defining manhood and womanhood. Mm-hmm. I'm not allowed to define that because I'm never allowed to tell you what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman. You just get to define that for yourself. And so you may be biologically, genetically male, but you can say, I'm a woman. And the mass of our culture says, that makes sense to me. I find that highly concerning to be at such a point that even the body in which I, uh, my body, which makes up part of me, doesn't even get to say anything about my identity. This is not exactly off the cuff. I did not come up with this just because I was thinking one day. It was something that I, I did learn. I, I read a book last year by 
um, an author named Nancy Percy, and the name of the book is Love Thy Body. And again, you know, I can't recommend everything. There are things I disagree with from her. But this principle of how we are in a culture that is actually renewed Gnosticism. And the renewal of Gnosticism is that we have these bodies that are evil and they're wrong and they're limiting. And what we've got to do is escape them because the real us is inside that. In fact, and so that's a Gnostic heresy. Mm -hmm. Orthodox Christianity since the very beginning has said that is heretical. We're not trying to escape the bodies. We're not, the real us is not on the inside. Despite, despite how much I love Star Wars and how much I love that line from Yoda, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter or flesh or whatever he says. Uh, that's a Gnostic heresy, that, which is fine in Star Wars as long as I understand that's what it is, but it's Gnostic heresy. I am this. This is what I am, or partially. I am body, soul, and spirit. And all of that says something about who I am. And we live in a culture that says my body says nothing about who I am. I get to be so individualistic that even my body doesn't get to say anything about my identity. And I find that very concerning. And that's that has led to all of the, the, the issues of pursuing homosexuality and homosexual marriage and continuing in that activity. That actually is is what supports the the idea of heterosexual sin. What makes me feel good right now? Well, marriage doesn't make me feel good right now. What makes me feel good right now is just getting to go have sex with whoever I want to right now. And that's sin. It's much as sin as pursuing a homosexual relationship is. And it's certainly gotten us to the point of of transgenderism that says, you know, even my own body doesn't get to tell me anything about my identity. That's my concern. One of the struggles that I that I see in our culture, and it stems from exactly what you were talking about, is our culture is willing on most things. I, I've been doing, biblically speaking, for several months now on on the topic of evidences and really looking at what the numbers say about is there a creator and how many trillions of years, not billions of years, but trillions of years it would take to create a single functioning protein I mean, it's mind-blowing. It's beyond it's beyond ridiculous to believe that any of this happened by accident, and yet we're told, follow the science. You know, follow the science. But when it comes to these things, there is no science behind it. It's all pleading of secret emotional knowledge. It's not – there's nothing scientific about, about people being born in the wrong bodies. There's nothing scientific about, about the uh, normalizing uh, the homosexual relationship – as somehow just as normal as the heterosexual relationship. There's nothing scientific about that at all. That science actually says the opposite of that. Every pleading that we make is emotional pleading. This is better for the individual. And yet, contrary to that pleading, what we see is that every time we normalize something like that as a culture, it's actually worse for them. There's actually less satisfaction with their life. There's actually less satisfaction than they thought they were going to have. And we've done, as you mentioned, we've done the same thing with heterosexuality and, and trying to normalize sex outside of marriage. What we see is that the more engaged a culture becomes in accepting sex outside of marriage, that the more depression is linked to that because we've separated this bond that was supposed to form a covenant from the covenant that makes it feel safe and secure and loving. And that is all coming down to individualism over the simple community that God designed. What you just said reminded me of an article that someone sent to me in the last two weeks. I think it came from the BBC, and it it was the first time I'd ever heard this term. But the headline was something along the lines, does solo polyandry, how is it worded? Does solo polyandry, does a person who pursues solo polyandry have it all? And my first thought was, okay, what on earth is solo polyandry? That's got way so too many I went ahead and read the article to, to find out. out. <laughs> yeah. So I, I went ahead and read the article to find out. And basically what it is, is the idea of just playing the field. It's the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm going to have multiple relationships that are meaningful relationships. But the the people I'm having these relationships with are not also in a relationship with each other. 
you know what? I think I said polyandry. Polyamory. Solo polyamory. I've got a relationship with person A and a relationship with person B, but A and B don't have a relationship with one another. And we're just all supposed to accept. In fact, they may have relationships with person C and person D. And But it's all meaningful. Get, the, That's a petri the, dish before long. The, uh, the headline was, does the person who's doing this have it all? Okay, and, and they were suggesting that they do because they get to experience every form of sexuality and every form of pleasure. But my reaction to that was, well, I'll tell you the one thing they don't have. They don't have anyone in their life that has promised to be wholly and totally committed to them. And they don't have anything in their life where they are learning to be wholly and totally committed to another person. And they're missing out on that. And they may have a lot of moments of pleasure, but what they don't have, is that abiding sense of safety that comes from knowing I'm committed to someone who's completely committed to me. So when you think about the crises that are affecting our faith today, we've talked about individuality. I think that has led to most other crises that you can imagine. Politics is all about individualism and trying to get us to feel like we are part of a bigger whole that is expressing all of our ideals is really something that most Americans have fallen into in the in the political alignment of this country. But what other what other crises are you seeing that give you reason to think okay we've got to address this? Well, I think we have a crisis of selfishness, which is probably just another way of saying a crisis of individuality. I think we have a, a point of turning that says, do I live by fear or do I live by faith? I think we have to, we, we, we've got these, these crises. I do think that there's a crisis among Christians about how do I deal with the crises that are in my culture? Because among Christians, what I see is I deal with crises in my culture the same way everybody in the culture does. I get mad at people and I yell at people and I point my finger at people and I take up I take up verbal arms against people. I don't go to the cross for people. I think th these are things that that I'm seeing as crises today. I'm not sure if if you know maybe you've got some things in your mind that you're even thinking of that 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 you thought I might see as well. I, probably if you named them I'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's one." <laughs> But, I, I uh, think it'd probably be the same. Those, ones, are the, those are the things I'm thinking. The same of ones right that you're thinking of. Things like, well, you you mentioned the verbal rhetoric, and, and even are we going to approach things in faith or are we going to approach them in fear? There was a lot of that rhetoric that was supposed to be announcing the the glory of God and how much trust I've had I have in Him over the last few years during the middle of this pandemic that was really used to express an individualism to create a schism among the brethren and. Even that has become something that has become sort of a point of crisis. That, that, but I think you encapsulated most of the ones that I see well when you talked about our willingness to take up the the causes and the battles of culture and make them our own and engage in them with the kind of distrust and hatred and verbal weaponry that our our society and culture engages in. When you know Jesus said, "Look, you know my." my servants are not of this world or, you know, my, my kingdom's not of this world or else my servants would fight. You know, we're not tied up yeah. in this, this, these kind of affairs. Our weapons are not carnal. They're, they're spiritual and they're for casting down the strongholds of the enemy. They're not for waging individual warfare. And, and by the way, most of the spiritual warfare we do shouldn't be with the culture anyway. It should be in our own heart. Yeah. For years, we've heard people decry Phariseeism <laughs> and the crisis of Phariseeism, which typically has to do with the idea of legalism. And certainly there are things that the Pharisees did wrong. God, Jesus tells us to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. But what's been sneaking in unbeknownst, a, a crisis, I think, among, you know, for me and among brethren, is Sadduceeism. <laughs> we've it's like we've completely ignored that one. Here we've got a group of people that they don't believe in spirit, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in resurrection. Basically what they see is what's going on in this moment. And we know that God is with us if I'm being blessed right now. And we know that God is with our nation and country, you know, the, the Sadducees as Jews, if God is blessing us right now. And so for them, there was a whole lot of compromise with Rome 
Because for them, it became a very pragmatic thing. If we get Rome mad at us and their armies come in, we're all going to die and we're going to lose our place and it would be terrible. But the crisis that I think we also have to recognize is that I fear for myself. And I see this as a crisis because I've recognized it in myself that I forget I live in a world where there is more than what I see. You know, when when the, the army came to Dothan, and um, oh, right now as I'm trying to call it to mind, I can't remember now if it was Elijah or Elisha, but uh, the, the man of God, his servant comes to him and says, oh no, look at all these soldiers. And the man of God says, oh, don't be afraid. There's more with us than with him. What are you talking about? And he prayed, God, open his eyes. And he saw the angelic warriors. There's more than what I can see and feel. And I'm not trying to get all science fiction-y and fantasy about it, but it's just the recognition that the goal is not about what's going to happen to America in this age, and it's not about my retirement, and it's not about how I feel today. The goal is about eternity. And I know there's a lot of debate about what eternity is going to look like. I I don't really get into that. I I just know that whatever eternity is, it's going to be better than this. And the goal is about that, which is why in Hebrews chapter 11, you have people that did not accept release from torture because they were going to look forward to resurrection. They'd rather go ahead and be tortured so they could be resurrected because for them, it wasn't the worst thing in the world to get tortured. The worst thing was to not have resurrection to life. And you realize that and you see that's sort of the central idea behind Revelation is that God is vindicating those who accepted the worst in this world that this world could dish out because they had their mind focused on what was to come in the resurrection. And that sort of leads us into the next two questions. Well, hold on, because I never did answer the hope. You had asked me about what gives me hope, and I never did answer that. I want to make sure to answer that before we move off of this. Can I do that? Yeah, because I don't want to just leave it with, here's all the bad stuff. There is hope. Look, ultimately, on everything, the hope is Jesus Christ and the resurrection. That's that's what I see as hope. It is not all about this life. And the fact is, everything here in America can go to pot, and America might start persecuting Christians, and in fact, do such a good job that it kills every Christian in America. They might do that. I, I mean, I don't, I don't foresee that happening, but that might be what happens. But you know what? If they do, in the end, I get to be with the Lord. And my hope is that it's, it's what's coming after that. And I know that we live in a world where people say that's pie in the sky and the great by and by. What I'm going to say is that is more real than where we are right now because where we are right now is transitory and what God has prepared for us is what is truly, truly real. So look, we have the same gospel today in this postmodern world that absolutely rocked and changed the pre-modern world and it can do the same thing today. So let me ask you this question. Are we turning our children? As, as we bring these things into our home life, the, the, the news is inescapable. I, I pretty much banned the news from my house. We don't watch it. We don't listen to mm-hmm. it. You know, I might read a little bit of it just so I can stay up on current events, but not to really engross myself in it. Because that's something that I you know, struggle with is negativity. Because that's my individual leaning is to feel like the weight of the world rests on my sh- on my shoulders. You know, Lauren calls me her atlas. That's not a term of endearment. It's, you know, what she's saying when I'm taking on too much. And, sure. you know, is there a danger that we are turning or teaching our children to face life in terms of crisis to crisis? And how do we keep these things from affecting our home life? So... You, you said, I think you mentioned it just a second ago about crisis addicts. Yeah. If not, if you didn't say it a minute ago, I know just in our talking before the turning the mics on, you mentioned that phrase. I'm not sure. I, I, honestly, I'm not sure how to answer that question. You know, the, the fact is every family is an individual thing. Looking culturally, are we turning, do we, do we see a, a crisis of being crisis centered among the next generation. I'm not sure. I, I think through that regarding like, okay, what is what is addiction? And addiction is the idea of I turn to something because I feel like I need it to feel whole, to feel safe. Either there, there are physical and biological addictions where I've actually my body has become so used to something that if I if I take it away, I'm gonna get sick and maybe even die. Then there's more like psychological addictions, though people 
argue about whether that's an addiction at all, but it is that idea that I, I feel like if I don't have this, I'm going to die. This is how I feel at home. Here's a, years ago, a fella showed up at a Wednesday night time of Bible classes uh, when I was in Texas, and he and I got to talking, and we studied, and I remember, he was just telling me, he was he was out of rehab somewhere for a for a drug addiction, and I've always remembered that he talked to me about the fact that when he talked to people who had never experienced a drug addiction, he said, you know, you can't, you don't understand what this, what, what addiction feels like. He said, when I, he said, here's, here's what you need to understand. This is what I struggle with is that taking my drug feels like home. Taking my that that addiction is I pursue the thing that makes me feel safe, secure. It it deals with all my fears and my insecurities, and and for the moment that I'm high on my drug, I feel at home, and that was eye opening for me. And you tie into that, the fact is that there are things that are supposed to make us feel at home, but it's not drugs, and it's not liquor, and it's not sex, and it's not spending money, and it's not gambling. I'm supposed to feel at home when I'm at home. By the way, that gets us back to community and family. And so when I pursue something that God did not design to bring the safety and the security and, and the homeness to be the answer, that's kind of an addiction. Do we have people that are crisis addicted? I have no doubt that we do. I don't feel at home unless there's some major crisis happening in my life. And, you know, hey, just trying to be real, just trying to be authentic. I'm an absolute hot mess. My life is full of one crisis after another. And I don't want to diminish the fact that our lives are a mess at times. But I do... I do get the sense from Facebook and social media that we've decided that is the good place to be. I was, I was talking to a friend of mine. You know, one of the, one of the things that that I struggle with some of these new superhero movies that are coming out. You know, it used to be that what superheroes were supposed to be were ideals. Right. They were, you know, the ideal man, the ideal woman who acts in ideal ways. And we all know, I don't know anybody who acts like that, but man, that's a goal to strive for. We've gotten to a culture that is now trying to say, well, I want to picture those heroes as authentic and real, as people that are just like me. What that does is it gives me nothing to strive for. It allows me to be focused on every problem and crisis. and, And when I don't have one, well, I think something is wrong. That becomes a crisis all on its own. What's my crisis? I don't have a crisis right now. And, you know, Babylon Bee has actually had a couple of good articles over the years <laughs> kind of lampooning that idea of the, the mom blogger who, who put out, you know, I mean, it's just really terrible. Today's going good. I'm not sure what that means. You know, <laughs> it's, it's a bad thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think that, that we, we do have. So, you know, are we training our kids that way? I, I don't know. I hope I haven't done that with my kids because I, I think, you know, when you first floated this idea of me meeting you about this, uh, my response was there's probably a dozen or a hundred guys better qualified to talk to you about being Christ-centered. I'm probably pretty good at being crisis-centered. So I hope I haven't trained my kids, but I probably have. But I, I just thought of some things that would train our kids to be crisis Centered. I mean, they may decide to do that on their own. I may be the best parent in the world and they still be crisis-centered. But things that I might do that would train it, if I exemplify to my kids that crises are an exemption to Christ-like behavior, if I'm, and I think that's sometimes what we do. I'm in the middle of a crisis, so I don't have to act like right. Jesus. In fact, you know, when Jesus calls me to account for this, I'm going to tell him. But I, I, I slammed my thumb with the hammer. What did you expect me to do? But, but string together a, a a bunch of obscenities and and to call down curses upon my parents and all of those kinds of things. Or at least you know, the crises become accepted. If I, 
<laughs> yes, exactly right. You know, if I if I have a hundred excuses in front of my kids for why this crisis means I don't have to behave like Jesus today, that's probably going to train them to be crisis addicted. If I have a hundred excuses and reasons why I can't obey God or, or why his word doesn't apply to me, oh, I know the verse says that, but in this situation, then I'm probably going to train them to be crisis addicted. You know, and and, and why? Why? Because when I get to that place, the crisis is what allows me to do just whatever yes. I want to do. That is exactly the and, thought and, that I had when I asked that question was, you know, what is this, what does the crisis say about me and my relationship with God? I didn't want to lead you down that path because, <laughs> because I wanted your answer to be authentic. But ultimately, that's what... I'm all about being authentic and real, that's right. Jared. That's right. <laughs> no, nothing but authenticity on man up. But, yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, that's exactly where I was hoping that you were going to go with that when I asked that question is that that when we allow the crisis to change our response from the godly to the worldly because I am hurting or I am angry, then what we do is we set a limitation on holiness. And so one of the things and because I have been in my in my life a very crisis centered individual. It, it's one of those things that I really have to work with every day. Is how do I react to outside stimulus, and am I going to just just take it on and be angry about it and 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 vocalize my anger all the time, or am I going to teach a lesson here that that shows will something that the way that we combat this is we try to show them godliness and holiness and our trust in God, our faith in Him, in, in the middle of situations where the world might say, you are right to express your individualism here because you have been wounded. Yeah. The, uh, so when I, when I posted that comment on Facebook, one brother uh, pushed back a little bit. And, and I understood exactly what he was doing as he, as he continued to talk. He said, look, crises happen. Crises right. happen. And when they do, they, they take over and we've got to deal with them. And that's exactly right. He's, and I appreciated him pushing back a little bit because it helped in my own mind make sure to, to streamline and solidify what I was really concerned about in that. And I think, you know, the, the, the thing that I do want to see is, is that, yeah, crises happen, but when I'm Christ-centered, I bring Jesus into the yes. crisis. I let him be the crisis manager rather than me being the crisis manager. And I think that's probably the difference when, I, when I'm boiling down as I'm, as I'm thinking through what that statement even means, as I've put it on, the, on the, the post that's even prompted this conversation, that when I try to be my own crisis manager, I've become crisis-centered and I'm going to be a problem and I'm going to have a problem. But when I let Jesus Christ be the manager of my crises... And that's, and I don't want that, you know, because Jesus tells me to do things in the face of my crises that are uncomfortable, that I don't like, you know, but, but when I let him be the manager and I just say, okay, I'm going to do what he says and let the chips fall where they may, you know, look, it's a crisis. Nebuchadnezzar has told me I either bow down to this statue or I'm going to get thrown into that fire. Yeah, all right. I know what Jesus says. Jesus says, go get thrown into the fire. That's very uncomfortable. I don't like it, but I'm going to let Jesus manage this crisis and I'm going to tell Nebuchadnezzar, you know what? It doesn't matter what you say or do. I'm not bound to that statue. And so, you know, hey, you, you, you do what you feel is right. best. Well, and that's, it's interesting that you said that about, you know, the way that we manage crisis. We, we fault the, the apostles for losing their faith in the middle of the storm. That, you know, Jesus got up and he rebuked the storm, peace be still. And the winds and the waves calmed. And he said, oh, you of little faith. And, and you know, we, we take that message to heart. You know, they panicked in the middle of the crisis. But one thing they did was they woke him up and invited him into the crisis. And I think that's where we fall even further short is we don't want him in the middle of our crisis because we like the storm. And that's, that, that's a dangerous place to be because it changes our view of God. You mentioned the superhero movies and how they used to be reflections of the ideal. That's one of the reasons why guys like Superman and Captain America were, were my favorite superheroes growing up because they really presented the ideal. And now we're presenting the dark and the gritty and the, the real, which is no more real than, than the ideal was when you get right down to it. But 
we do the very same thing with Jesus that we see Jesus, our culture does. We see our Jesus would support this, or Jesus would address this in this way, or Jesus would be friends with this person and accept them as they are. Except the scripture doesn't say that at all. It says that he would be kind to them, but it also says that he would teach them the truth, that he would he would share the message of the kingdom with them. He wouldn't affirm a lifestyle or a sin that they needed to come out of. I mean, what was it? He wouldn't stone him, but he would tell him, go and That's sin right. no more. And, and whether you're talking about the woman taken in adultery or Zacchaeus, who he said, you know, I'm going to your house today, and Zacchaeus made the pledge, and and I, I think he was vouching for his integrity in part because of the way that it reads, but I, I, I don't know that for certain. But, you know, I will restore, if I've taken anything by default I through fraud, I will restore it, that that's coming into the presence of Jesus and realizing who you're coming into the presence of. Yeah. When you when you mentioned the disciples being in the storm, I immediately started, I hadn't thought about it up until that moment, but talking about letting Jesus manage your crisis. Think about Peter. Peter has stepped out of the boat. He's walked on right. the water. What an amazing moment. But then he looks around and all of a sudden remembers that he can't walk on water. And the storm is is big and it's frightening and he starts to sink. Now, here is what crisis-centered does. Crisis-centered says, oh, there's the boat. I need to go get back in the boat. But what Peter did was Christ-centered. Yes. What he said was, I know who allowed me to walk on the water in the middle of this storm. I'm turning back to him. I'm going to let him manage this crisis. Far too often, I want to go back to the boat. And I want to get there by my own power. I need to reach out to Jesus. Well, unfortunately, friends, this is where I have to break in and tell you that Edwin will be back on Tuesday with more of this interview. I know it's just getting good, but there's a lot more to say about the Christian in crisis, and I hope that you'll return for that. And I want to give you an announcement right now because of Biblically Speaking Schedule and the the intensity of the Revelation programs that we're doing right now on Fridays. We're going to be moving the podcast days to Tuesdays and Thursdays, Tuesdays and Thursdays. So be looking for the second half of this interview to drop on Tuesday and the next interview to drop on Thursday. So I look forward to speaking with you on those days. And until then, have a good day. God bless and man up. Dismissed!